0: So we're in Acts 20, take your Bibles, Acts 20, verses 7 through 12, and I want to kind of take a a bird's eye view as we look at this passage, and it is a cool thing to see how Paul is on his third missionary journey, and we find him at Troas, he's been collecting from his different stops from these different churches uh, money to give to the Jerusalem church, And then from Troas, he was going to go south to a city called Asus. But before he does that, we see him preaching into the wee hours of the night. And we pick up our story there in Acts 20, verses 7 through 12. Let's all stand as we take a look at this passage. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. He conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So here are some sermon titles for today's message that did not make the cut. Sleeping in church can kill you. That's probably a little too direct. The danger of long sermons. Probably run with that. Uh, the necessity of ushers being paramedics, okay? Uh, or my favorite, how not to shrink your youth group. Um, <laughs> but I thought counting the cost is probably a little bit more benign, and so I ran for that one. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So, Yeah, the Christians getting to hear breaking bread, what does that mean? Well, it could mean one of two things, or it could mean both, that they were gathering for communion, they were gathering for a meal. When the New Testament talked about breaking bread, it could mean either one of those, according to the context, or it could mean both. So we're not told exactly, but I'm going to assume both here. So Paul starts to teach, and because he was going to leave the next day, it says that he took some extra time. Actually, he took a lot of time, right? Now, we don't know when he started, but we do know he didn't end, at least the first half of the message, until midnight. And then the second half went until morning. So it's safe to say that this sermon was not measured in minutes, but in hours. And you thought you had it tough here, right? Now, by Western standards, Preaching this long would seem like a cardinal sin, but actually in other countries, this would not be that big of a deal Uh, where people don't apparently suffer as much from digital attention deficit syndrome (laughs) like they do here. There were no football games to be missed. Uh, There was no family function that could not wait. The Apostle Paul was expounding on the word of God. He was answering questions, and apparently this congregation felt like, hey, you know, we're going to stay around for this. This is really the good stuff. They didn't see it as an inconvenience. And maybe it tips us off that whatever we are willing to sacrifice for, to stay up late for, might reveal to us what we value. When I was 21 years old, just a few years ago, and was a youth pastor in St. Louis. I was asked to come and give a presentation for a program I wanted to do to the elders. Present at the meeting was a business owner, an, an elderly man, very very kind man. He uh, made it known that he was not pleased with the presentation and he said, why don't you come over to my house? He meant like right after the meeting. So we got to his house at about 9 o'clock, 9 in the evening. He spent till about 2 or 3 in the morning with me, and he just talked about life. He talked about relationships. He talked about the Lord, and he talked about how to give a much better presentation or report. Now, honestly, I can't remember all the specifics of what he said, but I came away with one big thing. And that is that he valued people. And he even valued me by taking that kind of a time slot and investment in my life. A very busy man. The early church greatly valued meeting together. They voluntarily chose the first day of the week as an appropriate time for fellowship and worship. And of course, that was when the Lord rose Uh, from the dead, and appeared to his disciples. So the observance of this first day of the week uh, was their day, and that's corroborated by early church fathers. Uh, Barnabas wrote about this later in a a writing of his that did not make the New Testament. Ignatius spoke of this, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus. If those names uh, don't mean anything to you, don't worry about it. The point, though, is not to get hung up on a specific day, but to take a day to meet with the Lord and God's people. And such a weekly discipline is to be a staple for Christians. And it was in the midst of this kind of a a discipline that the Christians heard life-transforming truth and witnessed God moving in a miraculous way. Now, I'll admit, it's not every day that you get to hear an apostle or you see a boy trying to imitate Superman and meeting us in, but it's often in the midst of the mundane, regular disciplines, that God speaks, that God moves, and God transforms. Now, I'll admit, he can certainly do it miraculously and dramatically, and we, and we enjoy seeing that happen, right? He can also do it slowly deeply in the midst of relationships that steer our hearts to where where truth can take root. Just an observation, but I, I would hope that you would agree with me that when we live in the extremes, I think it's here that we experience most of our disillusionment and our disappointment with God or the church or spirituality. I mean, when we expect Every week to have you know bodies flying out of the, the, the window, or emotional appeals from riveting orators, we might fail to hear God whispering to us. And maybe by going for the dramatic all the time, we teach our children that the shiniest, the biggest, the loudest experiences are the best. And I would suggest in a case like that, that discernment is lacking. Now, on the other extreme, if we fail to believe and expect God to do the miraculous, our faith remains small. And we even can become skeptical when God actually moves and does the miraculous. And that's not a good place to be, right? Now, while God does not operate on a whim... I think there are certain times that God moves because of our prayers and because of our faith, right? Jesus said, all things are possible to one who believes in Mark 9. Later, when Jesus was addressing his disciples for why they could not cast a demon out of a particular man, Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So it's gonna take something special here to do this thing, prayer, faith. So I can assume from this that there are some things that do not happen in our life because there's not prayer or there's not enough faith. James says, you do not have because what? You do not ask. Now, it doesn't mean that God has ceased being sovereign, and it doesn't mean that God will answer every one of our prayers on whatever whim that we're experiencing. James also said, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So you've got that, too, to kind of balance things. I have found that it's actually a discipline in itself to find contentment with Christ And yet learn to pray, to pray about big things for God to do big, awesome stuff and take risks. That's a discipline because it's easy to go, you know, one side or the other and say, you know, I'll just play it safe, not expect God to do big things, not pray for big things. And then our faith can remain small. And then it's easy to go to the other extreme and just expect God to do something you know, big and miraculous every day, and, and we limit God moving in the small things, and we don't acknowledge that. So there's discipline here in how we think, how we approach this. Our passage says, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathering, a young man named Eutychus sitting on the window sank into a deep sleep. By the way, I heard three, uh, two other stories after my first sermon in the early service of people that talked about, you know, I know a guy who fell out of three stories and fell in bush. I know a guy who fell on cement and survived. So keep him coming. I like hearing those stories, all right? But it says, he's overcome. He fell through the th- third story. And Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with him a little while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. It's always a weird way when we see, we've see. we seen this a couple times in, in Acts where in the Greek they understate the point to shed light on the fact that these people were exuberant. All right, this was a big thing going on here. Uh, they were not a little comforted. That means they were really comforted much. We are told that there was plenty of lighting available here. This is just a little detail in the form of uh, lamps because of the late hour. And uh, commentators have said there's an odor that those lamps cast. uh, uh, There's heat that goes on. And most of these lamps would be near a window to vent. So it makes sense why a guy would uh, perhaps get drowsy. A young man named Eutychus was sitting at the window, and he fell asleep. Now, the Greek for young man, one Greek scholar said uh, that could refer to a young lad of 8 to 14 years. So it gives you a little bit of... uh, an idea as how old this kid was. He fell asleep. Now, falling asleep at inopportune times is not new. I mean, Adam went to sleep and he woke up married, all right? <laughs> and he was missing body parts, all right? <laughs> Samson fell asleep and he woke up bald and beaten. Jonah fell asleep in a boat. And he ended up wet. The disciples fell asleep when Jesus asked them to stay awake. I need you to pray. And they fell asleep. The Bible actually has a lot to say about sleeping too much or sleeping at times that we should be alert and awake. For instance, to the lazy, those who refuse to work, comes this wisdom. This is in Proverbs. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So go to work. You're sleeping too much. Get out of bed. Also, when people are put into positions of responsibility, they're made a leader of something, an organization or anything, it can often go to one's head. And they can maybe grasp at the power and the perks that come along with that position. Israel's spiritual leaders experienced this. Uh, It went to their head. And their political and spiritual leaders were addressed by Isaiah when he said this. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. I mean, how would you like to follow a leader who has no understanding? Has no clue. You're probably saying, you just described my boss, all right? And we, we, we probably have all experienced someone like that, right? That's in a, in a position. A spiritual leader should pause and consider Nahum's warning. He said, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is nobody leading them the spiritual leaders are asleep at the switch and there's dire need for leadership. So there's a, there's a time to rest. There's also a time for working, leading, praying. Now the name of Eutychus literally means fortunate. That's a tad ironic for a kid who fell out of a, three-story window while sleeping and died. But actually, if one were to fall and meet his death, it's better to do it in the presence of an apostle than anywhere else, I suppose. Charles Spurgeon said this, Remember, if we go to sleep during the sermon and die, there are no apostles to restore us today. (laughs) Now, the fact that this occurred in a three-story home indicates that the person who owned the home was wealthy. Uh, These were uh, unusual to have homes with these multiple floors. So you're looking at a wealthy Christian at Troas, willing to open up his or her home for the purpose of a house church. So the longer Paul talks the more fast asleep Eutychus becomes. And verse nine says, after the fall, he died. Now, can you imagine what would happen in today's world if this took place? At a church, in a meeting, right? I mean, imagine being known as the church where that kid died. (laughs) That's something you would not want on your billboard. Imagine all the government organizations falling all over themselves to address that church and all the safety procedures that were not in place. Imagine parents and family ready to sue. Tragedy is not the usual method for church growth. Now, we don't know much about Eutychus except his age, but it does make me wonder what was going through his head and heart before and after this episode. I wonder what he thought of Christians and the church before and after this. Now, In verse 10, we're told that Paul went downstairs, knelt down next to the boy, and the life returned to his body. I love that picture. The apostle holding that boy in his hands. It's a good picture of any good spiritual leader or any leader for that matter, embracing those caught in infirmities and distress. Paul didn't panic. But imagine how distraught. And We get a picture of that because Paul had to address them. How distraught the congregation was who followed him down the three stories and gathering around, around this boy. Paul calmed down the congregation who followed him downstairs. Paul could see that God wanted to do something here and raise this boy from the dead. The congregation, all they saw was a dead boy. The lamentation of Jeremiah is applicable here. For death has come up into our windows, it's entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. So it tells us a little bit also about what the crowd was thinking after this. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That means there was a lot of comfort. There was a lot of joy being experienced after this boy was brought back to life. Initially, they were grieving, and now they're rejoicing over what God has done. Imagine the walk home and the stories to tell after seeing that happen. There's something here that perhaps we might take for granted that I think is an amazing thing. The meeting continued. (laughs) This was just an interruption. A dead kid (laughs) and then being raised from the dead. The meeting continued. I mean, after the boy gathers... His breath and the dirt and the blood are wiped away. Paul goes upstairs and he resumes answering questions, speaking to the congregation. And not only did they go past midnight, they went into the morning hour, continued on meeting. This episode did not cause the meeting to stop. It caused it to go further. Now, do you think the boy would have said, Eutychus, you know what? I'm tired now. I think I need to go home. You know, we don't hear him say that. The boy didn't say, you know, I've got some chariot races tomorrow I've got to go to. I've got to get some sleep. No, he still hangs around. You know, he could have said, you know, Pa, kind of boring. Plus, the synagogue music, it's like, <laughs> sleeper, all right? I'm going to go to another synagogue down the street here. Uh, we don't see that either. There seemed to be an understanding that a community of faith was the laboratory, the environment from which lives were transformed. And not even what took place here could stop that from happening. It was enough to cease from meeting. There seems to be this kind of deep underlying appreciation of valuing the the time with Paul, certainly, but also enjoying the community of faith. I mean, they they were breaking bread together. Something about sharing a meal, sharing communion together. They, They discussed scripture. They asked questions. They talked about the movement of God amongst them. And this was worth hanging around into the wee hours of the morning because there was something that they valued greater than their convenience, greater than what was perhaps being interrupted. I think of us as parents and our job to teach such values to children and the responsibilities we have and i know it weighs heavy upon all of us as parents of course any parent near our age knows it never stops your job of parenting doesn't stop once your kids are out of the house it it continues but we were to make choices and steer our lives in a direction that help our children grow spiritually right I mean, our homes are to be fertile grounds where spiritual growth is fostered, where scripture is read and discussed, where they they see us serving. You could could say it this way, you're a disciple maker as a parent. You're making a disciple. Now, of all the things that are important to us, we want our kid to graduate from college, you know, to get straight A's, you know, we want him to be able to have a good curveball but try to top being a faithful disciple. Anything uh, that tops that? I mean, if parents are responsible for that, that means parents are to be actively involved in making whatever endeavor helps us to accomplish that goal, make those a priority. And so as parents, we have to choose our priorities, our activities, and I'd say even our churches, based on this discipleship objective. You know, so that's the job of a parent. That means we have to make choices, and sometimes the kids may not like it, but I'm like, so what? That's parenting, right? I mean, I want their hearts to be aligned, but sometimes you, you have issues in your family that you have to deal with, and they may not always like it, at least initially. We have to choose these things. I don't, by the way, I didn't ask my kids when they were 13, 14 years old, so uh, what doctor do you think we should go to? I didn't ask their opinion of that. I didn't ask my kids, uh, where do you think I should go to to get a mortgage on our home? I didn't ask them that question. So why would I put into the lap of a 13 or 14-year-old to make these major decisions Uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, what church to go to or other spiritual decisions about the direction of our family. They're to follow our lead. Now, it's not that their opinion doesn't matter, but it's ultimately a parent's responsibility. These are adult choices because children do not have the maturity or bandwidth to make those choices yet. They can have opinions but it ultimately rests on the parents. We're raising disciples. That means we have to teach them and model saying no to some things in order to say yes to more important things, to the things that we we value the most. And they're to see that in how we live our lives, not just in what we say they're to do, right? They're to witness us staying faithful. They're to witness how we serve others. They're to witness us practicing the spiritual disciplines. They're to witness us loving one another in hard times. When I may not get the love I think I expect from my spouse, I continue to be faithful and love when it's hard. The child learns, you know what? There's something to value about endurance. There's something to value about faithfulness. Those are important things. And when our homes learn to value the most important things, making a sacrifice, that's really no big deal. But I would say that I think it's in this environment of the disciplines of God following these on a regular basis. That's where I think we see God's best work. And I have a sneaky suspicion that, that years down the road... Eutychus certainly didn't forget what Paul did for him, but I'm willing to bet that he valued greatly and perhaps even more than the experience he had the wisdom gained from listening to Paul and other leaders within that community. I'm willing to bet he loved that community and he loved the the sharing of the meal together, the communion together, hearing people laugh and maybe even cry, knowing that, Paul was leaving. I mean, those takeaways can only happen when we purposely involve ourselves in close community, this dynamic teaching in a a sense that we are involved in something that is beyond ourselves. We're involved in in a mission, a purpose, a vision that is beyond just our felt needs. I mean, having connection, that's important. I mean, if I, if I hear it once, I've heard it a thousand times. You know, we want to get connected or, or not connected enough or, you know, we feel connected. You know, it's a buzzword for church say being connected. And it, it's a good thing. Now, I'm not poo-pooing the idea. But having connection is not enough when the topic is the kingdom of God. I mean, these people were on a mission, right? These people knew their lives were being spent on something far beyond their needs, and they were in. There was no question about sacrificing or whether I'm willing to give, I'm all in, right? I mean, how is it that we have missionaries that we talk to and it tells stories or even themselves, they're willing to die? How is it that they do that? How is it that people are in the body of Christ are willing to give away an extravagant measure? It's not a problem for them. They're on mission. How is it that people can forgive and love and not talk behind other people's backs with a diverse group. and, And that's what's expected. That's not the exception because they're on a mission. I mean, we value doing the hard thing. We value meeting the needs of our neighbor. We value loosening the grip on our possessions. And taking risks for the sake of our king and his kingdom. Equipping and empowering people in their God-given gifts to advance the kingdom of Christ.